Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is your culinary focused lifestyle show where every Sunday we obsess over what to eat and drink today and every day. It's like having a food-loving best friend to distill the culinary world into must-do, must-eat, and must-know recommendations. I cover food, wine, and cocktails, travel, health, and the environment, and I am all about living the best life. So if you're hungry for delicious conversation, well, then you are in the right place. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and my podcasts are found on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry, and linked directly from my homepage. And you can also find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Let me set the table for you because we do have a full plate today, heating it up in your radio with grand guests and chef's tips to make your dishes come alive with flavor. It's my goal to satiate your appetite, and my appetite is always satiated at Shake Shack. The culinary director, Mark Rosati, is sharing the secrets to a Shake Shack burger and more coming up, so please stay tuned. Also, we will dish and eat the world with the editor of Savoir magazine, Adam Sachs, before the end of the hour, and you won't want to miss it. It's always uh, my goal, I will say, at the end of spring and into summer to try to make summer last forever. So I thought I would inspire you with one of my favorite summer treats. And I call it a treat because there's something absolutely luscious and simple and beautifully chilled about it. I happen to adore the fact that it comes together in just a few minutes. And I have to say that gazpacho is definitely one of the highlights of summer, one of my favorites. At the start of this show, I hope to wax poetic and share a method, a technique, or insight into something truly delectable that will make you a culinary hero. And gazpacho happens to be the soup for cooks who don't like recipes. It's the cold Spanish classic, traditionally made with ripe tomatoes. It's very adaptable, and to me, it just screams summer. So as we wait for the start of summer, allow me to teach you my best tricks for this simple technique that takes just minutes. I think it's the perfect starter in a shot glass. And by the way, you can even spike your gazpacho with tequila or vodka. Why not? It makes a really nice main course if you're serving grilled shrimp. It needs some good grilled bread. And it's really more of a drink than a soup. If you're serving it in frosted glasses or chilled tumblers, it's perfect when it's too hot to eat, but you need cold, salt, and lunch all at the same time. Gazpacho is everywhere in Seville, Spain, where this recipe actually comes from. But there, it's not the watered-down sort of salsa, grainy vegetable puree that you might know. In Spain, it often has bread added for viscosity. And it's usually this creamy, orangey-pink color rather than lipstick red because they add copious amounts of olive oil, 
which really makes delicious gazpacho. And it's the emulsion of red tomato juice, the palest green cucumber without the peel, and that golden olive oil that produces that beautiful color and that smooth, almost fluffy texture. So let's make a batch of gazpacho, shall we? Gazpacho is all about the base, and great gazpacho starts with epic tomatoes because the preparation is raw. There is no hiding substandard tomatoes. Juicy tomatoes are an ideal tried and true base, and I actually suggest if you can't get San Marzano's from Italy, my favorite tomato, you go for aroma, a a red, ripe Roma. But you can substitute canned tomatoes if necessary. Please use the ultra pure Roma tomatoes in puree. I like the whole versions that you'll blend up. Now, the accents to gazpacho are soft herbs like basil or mint and parsley, cilantro. All are welcome. And then I like finely chopped garlic to go in, even though you're blending it, then you need an acidic element to sort of brighten the soup. And sherry wine vinegar is the go-to in Spain. Other vinegars work nicely as well, as does lemon juice or lime juice. I happen to love sherry vinegar. And then often a very minuscule splash of hot sauce is added. Now, when it comes to texture, gazpacho, just like peanut butter, has two camps, chunky or smooth. And to me, there is no in-between. So you have to choose. It can be rustic and chunky or smooth and elegant. Now, if you like texture, then a food processor works best. I like to make my gazpacho smooth and chunky, actually. So for me, the blender is the best tool for the job. I like the actual soup itself to be elegant and light and fluffy and lovely. And then I reserve some of the vegetables to stir in at the end. So it has sort of big chunks that are toothsome to give that smooth puree some contrast. Now, in Spanish style, for a thicker soup, you add shards of rustic bread or even a handful of raw almonds to the blender along with the vegetables. And you need a good dose, as I mentioned, a good, generous dose of good quality olive oil to add richness. And of course, you must season well with salt and pepper. I like to make the gazpacho a day in advance because I think the flavors meld better and you'll often need to adjust the seasoning that second day and mix it up really well before you serve it. Now, as for garnishes, purists will opt for nothing but chilled tomato goodness. I happen to like the toppings. I love a spoonful of ricotta, or you could consider fresh crumbled goat cheese. I like garlicky croutons or crispy prosciutto, where you bake slices of prosciutto until crisp and then you crumble them. And then, of course, if you really want to gild the lily, a few steamed clams or even a crab claw in the bowl make gazpacho absolutely come alive with flavor. You can find a few variations of gazpacho on my website, once again, at chefjamie.com. And I'd love to know how you make your gazpacho. So please email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. And a quick follow-up on my tutorial on apple cider vinegar from last Sunday's show. I asked if anyone had great tips on how they use apple cider vinegar. I'd love to know. And thank you, Bonnie, for your kind email. 
She says she pours vinegar directly on weeds and they're dead overnight. So much better and cheaper than chemicals. That's brilliant and I can't wait to try it. Uh, Cheers to you, Bonnie, and thanks again. And it is time now for food news this week. Keeping food lovers in the know. Up until today, the world's hottest chili pepper has been known to be the Carolina Reaper. You were thinking ghost pepper. I know. It's not the hottest, though. The Carolina Reaper weighs in at around 2.2 million Scoville heat units, so it's actually edible. That is not the case with the new chili that easily eclipses the Reaper in terms of heat. It is so potent it has to be kept in a sealed container. No one has actually consumed it yet. But this new pepper called the Dragon's Breath Chili was developed by hobby grower Mike Smith and Nottingham University. And the team is actually expecting a confirmation letter anytime soon from the Guinness Book of World Records to officially name their pepper as the world's spiciest. The Dragon's Breath Chili has a 2.8 million Scoville heat unit register. It is dangerous to consume. It could literally burn your airways. And the creators haven't even dared to eat it themselves. It was actually developed for medicinal purposes because the oils in the chili are so potent that they can actually numb the skin. So it's being considered to uh, use as a topical anesthetic for those who are allergic to the current painkillers that are available. Interesting stuff, right? So if you happen to see a dragon's breath chili, look but don't touch. It makes great dinner party conversation though, don't you think? And you are now a foodie in the know. And please don't touch your dial because there is lots more fabulous food and delicious conversation coming up. We are going to dish on the deliciousness that is Shake Shack, a burger and a frozen custard right after this. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. When I land at JFK for my quarterly business trip, I have a plan of action. I pray for minimal traffic over the bridge. I check into the hotel and then I go directly to Shake Shack. And every trip, it happens in just about that order. Now, there are 130 Shake Shacks across the country, so you have no doubt indulged in a Shake Shack burger. But there is something about the Madison Square Park location that gives me the tingles. If you can't get to the shack, the Shake Shack has just released their first ever book filled with recipes and stories from the beloved burger and frozen custard mecca. It was founded and owned by Danny Meyer, the industry icon behind Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe, Blue Smoke, and dozens more. And by the way, Danny graced this show some years back when he shared his New York Times bestseller, Setting the Table. Shake Shack is run by culinary director Mark Rosati, and he is here to dish. 
With 10 years under his belt with the Union Square Hospitality Group, Mark is sharing an insider's look into the deliciousness that is Shake Shack. And I am so glad you are here. Hi, Chef. Hey, Jamie. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing Thanks for well. having me on. Yes, I'm so glad to have you. Uh, congratulations. The book is part wonderfully tell-all, and it's steeped in history, and I felt like I was as close as I could get to a burger without tasting it. That, that was our intention, was um, to not only give the recipes that people have come to love at Shake Shack, right. but also kind of tell the stories behind some of those recipes, and also, also our history uh, itself, because I think it is quite unique, because we never started out uh, to grow Shake Shack into 130 locations. We, we start out just to uh, raise some money for the mm. park that we opened the first Shake Shack in here in New York City, in Madison Park. Right. Um, and the reason why was because the founder of our company, Danny Meyer, had opened two restaurants right across the street from Madison Park. And when he opened those restaurants, this was about 15, 16 years ago, Madison Park was not a nice place in New York City. No. Uh, the, the joke was you never, you never walk through it, you walk around it. Right. And Danny felt a little disheartened that he would have guests coming in enjoying these wonderful meals, enjoying uh, great hospitality, hmm. but they'd be looking out on this park. So Danny uh, joined a on to help revitalize Madison Park, and uh, part of that was opening Shake Shack. And the idea was they were our landlord, and the, the profits from our food would go to the park to pay rent. And fast forward, uh, 13, 14 years later, it's, it's very surreal to see how Shake Shack has grown because it's all been accidental. We, we opened the doors, and our whole mission was to serve just good, simple, old-fashioned hamburgers, but using the absolute best ingredients we could. And while my job is to fully think about the food at Shake Shack, I know at the end of the day, while people come back, it's not just the food, but it's also the hospitality yeah. that we're famous for. Is it ever? And ever since then, we've just, we've just slowly grown. Well, and you've slowly, slowly grown, but with, uh, with great dignity, I should say, because I have been to multiple Shake Shacks in multiple cities, and there is something about the continuity of what you serve and the momentum by which you have grown that I really think sets Shake Shack apart. And there is extraordinary history. You are serving what is really great fast food. And I think you would admit that, right? I mean, what is your philosophy on it? Well, for us, we, we are admirers of, 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 of quick-service burgers, quick-service fries, hot dogs. Um, and back in the 1950s in America, I feel like that was the heyday, mm-hmm. where the whole reason you had these burger stands popping up across the country was because of the automobile. The cool thing to do is you buy your hot rod, you drive to the local burger <laughs> stand, you park it outside, you hang out with your friends and show off your car. But what... What was really being created in that moment in America was the great American gathering place where communities would come together over delicious food to hang out, to meet their friends, and just kind of catch up on the activities on the day. And that was a very, very beautiful time. It was all about freshly ground beef, making uh, really tasty, delicious food, the most wholesome ingredients one could find. Then as time went on, it became less about that experience and more about just getting a quick meal and not even so much the quality of it anymore, and especially in the 80s and 90s. We saw a kind of a di- decline in the quality of the food. And, you know, my, when I grew up, I w- ate a lot of fast food. And I feel what's great about what we're doing at Shake Shack and what a lot of other companies are starting to do these days is saying that 
it's not about the quick experience anymore. And it's, it's finding a wonderful middle ground between what fine dining is, where Shake Shack was born out of, and also fast food. And we're kind of calling that space these days fine casual, where it's a trade down from a fine dining meal where you'd probably pay more money, you'd have the white tablecloths, you'd have the service, and it's a trade up from fast food where you're getting a lot better quality food and a lot better quality experience. But again, the price is a little more gentle, like mm-hmm. a fast food experience. And I think it's something very unique and very interesting that we're experiencing right now. But that's, that's where Shake Shack really was born out of, is, is we are definitely rooted in fast food, but we're trying to bring the experience and the quality of the food back by using natural sugars, right. all natural, no hormone, no antibiotic, beef, pork, everything that's on our menu. We just try to make it the best it can be because in this time, in this generation, mm-hmm. we do care about where our ingredients are coming from, and no, we want to know. We do. And back in the day, they did as well, like you alluded to. I mean, I, I love the timeline in the book where it sort of highlights Danny's American roots and what taught him to love a drive-in. Personally, you should know, Chef, I grew up on Apple Pan. So I, I know, I mean, born and raised in LA, I know that burger well. And that was a treat to sit on a red stool and actually, you know, grab a seat at the counter. The feel of the Shake Shack menu has that creation of the legendary burger joint in mind. It does. And that's funny you say that because it, it, Shake Shack in its origins is pretty much an homage to our founder, Danny Myers' upbringing. Right. He grew up in the Midwest, and he grew mm. up eating uh, griddled and smashed burgers, which were very popular, uh, Chicago-style hot dogs, and also frozen custard. Frozen custard. custard. No, no, it's, it's, it really is something quite delicious, and oh. it does require us to pause and think about it a little bit and how Thank wonderful you. it is. Yes. And, uh, you know, it was something really unique. And Danny, when he opened Shake Shack, he, he said to himself, this is the food I grew up eating. I want to kind of harness my childhood and bring it to New York mm-hmm. City and serve just classic comfort food that uh, will be a summertime fair. When we first opened Shake Shack, it was only seasonal. We kind of booked in the summer uh, when we opened it. And I remember that. Fun. Yeah. And, again, this is all very unintentional, the growth of Shake Shack. Again, it was open to be a seasonal restaurant serving just classic uh, American fare. And, you know, the, the cool thing about, like, Danny harnessing his childhood was nothing was off limits. Even though a lot of people in New York did not know what frozen custard is, which is pretty much a freshly made ice cream that's very dense and rich and creamy, he said, you know, this is the stuff I like to eat. And I think, I think a lot of people will have a connection with this food because at the end of the day, it's very universal in its appeal. Yes. And I think the cool thing, as you're saying with Apple Pan, which I, every time I take a trip to L.A., I have to visit, (laughs) is there is that nostalgia. And again, it's bringing people together. You're sitting down in a very uh, busy restaurant. You get, you're lucky if you can get to the counter. Cop a squat, right. You're sitting next to very cool people you never met before, but you're all coming together because you have an appreciation for good food. And there are so many times I've struck up conversations with people sitting next to me, or the servers. Hmm. At the end of the day, going there, getting some fries, seeing the way they pour out the ketchup, fishing off with a slice of pie. Mm. I can't think of anything better. No, I can't either. Okay, so then let's talk food. And let's talk Burger Bliss specifically, please. I learned from the book that Pat LaFrieda, whom we know as New York's infamous third-generation burger, says that your secret meat blend at Shake Shack dies with him. Is that right? Yes. That is very true. There, there are a few 
few people in the world that know the secret to our blend. And to be honest with you, it's nothing, it's nothing too over the top. Um, at the end of the day, I've been asked in the past, like, you know, what are you guys doing? Your burgers are so juicy. Is there, like, butter in there? Are you cooking them in olive oil? At the end of the day, it's just freshly ground meat, and, and we use the entire muscle, the entire steak of the cattle, and that's what we grind. And when you bite in, the juice drips down the side of your mouth and onto your chin if you don't catch best it part. quickly enough. The best part. Yep. The best part. We'll take yep. a quick break. When we come back, there is more to indulge upon with Mark Rosati, culinary director of Shake Shack, the new book release called Shake Shack, Recipes and Stories from the Infamous and Ever-Growing Humble Hamburger Stand made famous by the great Danny Meyer. More right after this. We're back and we're dishing your late because Mark Rosati is here, culinary director at the helm of Shake Shack, the new book released just a few days ago, sharing recipes and stories from the infamous Burger Shack that has made its way across the country from its roots in New York City. Chef, as long as you're sharing secrets, can you explain the anatomy of the very sought after Shake Shack burger? You talked about the meat and that sear and the flat top. Uh, but I know for you, the cheeseburger, plain and simple, is it. I happen to be a spread girl. So break it down for us, if you would. <laughs> well, I, I, and, that's, and that's why we have our Shack Burger, which is our absolute signature burger that we've had on our menu since the inception of Shake Shack. Uh, it's a cheeseburger topped with lettuce, tomato, and our Shack sauce, which is kind of our homage to all the classic condiments that have ever graced the burger going back to the 1950s, that kind of golden age of burger culture. There's a little bit of mayonnaise in there, some ketchup. Uh, there's some actual pickle juice in there, too, and also mm. mustard. And okay, wait. all very con- classic condiments. Chef, pause there for a second, because I have to tell you a selfish story. When, sure. when I fly to New York for business or pleasure, I leave extra room in my suitcase. And I do that... <laughs> So that I can bring Hellman's mayonnaise back to the West Coast. Ah, I will tell you, albeit they are made by the same company and best foods on the West, in the West versus Hellman's on the East are supposedly made in different plants. And I believe it with a slightly different recipe. There is nothing like Hellman's. And it warmed my heart to see that your mayo is uh, the Hellman's favorite. We, we do love Hellman's here, and Who it's doesn't? always been one of the items that, I mean, especially working in restaurants yes. throughout New York City, sometimes you'd make a mayonnaise, but sometimes you didn't. And if you didn't, you used Hellman's. You used Hellman's. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, sorry. Go, go back to the making of the burger, please. So for us, like, it's all about creating, like, really unique flavors onto each item, making sure they're, they're absolute best in quality, and then also within that, layering those flavors on the burger to create something that when you bite into all the elements, there's a harmony. Mm. So we, we, we put a lot of work into the blend of the burger. We added American cheese because we do love the creaminess and tang that you get from American cheese. It's just a wonderful melting cheese. And as you mentioned, I, I kind of am a purist when it comes to burgers, and I feel if you get a burger right off the griddle, 
where the juices are still bubbling and the cheese is melted and creamy, mm-hmm. it just it creates its own wonderful sauce. Yes. Um, so that those were our elements. And then we add a little bit of tomato. We, we use Roma tomatoes. We like them nice and small and super flavorful. Uh, we always get them ripened on the vine. And it just brings some a little bit more juiciness to the burger and also some sweetness to balance out the salty crust of the burger and also the saltiness of the cheese. Hmm. Uh, we add a piece of lettuce because we do like that vegetal crunch that it provides. And lastly, our shack sauce, which is all those ingredients I spoke about earlier being brought together. If you taste the sauce by itself, you should taste a balance between like salty, sweet, sour, all those elements, a little bit of smoky in there. And what we're trying to do is create a very well-composed sauce that's balanced within itself. But then when it all comes together with the lettuce, the tomato, the cheeseburger on the bun, Mm. The sauce is just the icing on the cake. We never want to take away from the nuances of the burger because at the end of the day, that's the heart the of heart any and great soul. burger. No doubt. Yep. You made, you made me hungry. Alongside <laughs> are some really phenomenal French fries. And I was really uh, quite amazed, to be very honest, that you're using Yukons and not Kennebecs. Yes. Yes. But we, why? I mean, they are so good. Yes. (laughs) We love love the texture of the Yukons and also the flavor. We find them to be just a little bit sweeter. And what's great about that, again, is we talk about balance. Then when we bring the salt into the equation, who doesn't love a salty fry? There's greater balance between all the elements there. And uh, since the opening of Shake Shack, our crinkle cut fries have always been the Yukon variety. And we just love the flavor. And also, they have that beautiful golden color. Mm, that they do. I'll give you that for sure. Uh, <laughs> the Shake Shack Recipes and Stories book, the first ever cookbook from restaurateur Danny Meyer's beloved modern day roadside burger stand has just released. And it is everything from the burgers and fries to the shakes and the dogs that you can create at home. It shares the recipes, the history, the inner workings, the stories, and the business lessons learned along the way. Uh, And it is a phenomenal read. It is called Shake Shack Recipes and Stories. And the culinary director, Mark Rosati, is strewn throughout. You do hear the best culinary thinkers, the best gastronomic stories. Oh, and we do eat well on this show. So don't touch your dial. There is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. The spring issue of Savour magazine is on newsstands now, and it is chock full of glorious stories about the wonderful world of food, new ideas, inspiration, and recipes for your table. 
Savor's editor-in-chief, Adam Sachs, is back, and he's here with Insight. Hey, Adam. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Is it Lamprodotto? Because if you could sneak away for food travel, would you go straight to Florence for Lamprodotto or drunken spaghetti? I would be happy to go there, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we should go there after, after this. Okay. Uh, I think it's Lamprodotto. I don't know. I'm from Kentucky. I, I know I know you it's are. Delicious. I, Whatever I it is, say, it's delicious. I don't care how you pronounce it, I want that sandwich. And it's not a great looking sandwich, but it is it's it's you gotta close your eyes and, and, and get in there. Well it doesn't come from a great looking part of the animal, <laughs> would you say? But yes, it is uh supposed to be extraordinarily luscious. Tell us about the Florence piece because I thought it was a, a wonderful lead in to talk about eating around the world. Yeah, this is a, a fun story. Um, Adam Golner, who is a wonderful writer and uh, traveler and, and eater of, of all things, um, went to Florence and, and tried to find you know some new ways in. So we, we call it Tripe and Truffles and Seven Other Ways to Love Florence. And he wanders around and he hangs out with art students and he eats uh, Lampredotto, which is this sort of ugly uh, tripe, a certain kind of tripe in a, yes. in a big mushy sandwich. Um, but it, he, finds, uh, he finds various ways to, to sort of find something new about a city that, you know, has a lot of tourism and, and has, has, is pretty familiar to a lot of people who've spent time in Italy. Yes, and I think there's something wonderful about the rusticity of the food there and just the beautiful nature of it. I also loved the piece, if we could stay in Italy for a moment, on the Pellegrino Brothers. They have a passion for foraging. I wonder, have you been to their restaurant? I haven't, and I haven't been. I've been to a fair amount of Italy. I haven't been down here. This is down in the, the heel of the boot in Lecce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these uh, the Pellegrino Brothers, who are chefs who, who grew up there and and left and worked around and came back uh, to open a, open a restaurant. And they're, yeah, they're just sort of doing what a lot of good chefs are doing these days and looking for ingredients in the, you know, the, the bounty of the ingredients all around them and, and, uh, and also uh, cooking a sort of rustic, straightforward Italian cuisine. I'd love to go down to Lecce and try it. Yes, I would too. I was amazed at their incredible talent and as well received as they have been. They're very young. I, I mean, talk about chef prodigies. Exactly, yeah. They start them young over there. Yes, no doubt. 22 (laughs) years old and foraging. You have to love any chef, Adam, that will stop the car to get out. For, it's a good sign, I think. It yeah. is, for mushrooms or otherwise. When we go, my husband and I have a, an annual trip. We, we sort of recreate our honeymoon every year to Maui. And oh, nice. Yes, there's this wonderful, it's phenomenal, but there's this wonderful quasi-farm on the road on the way to the hotel that we stay at. And every year, my husband expects me to scream, stop, stop the car, when I see the <laughs> fresh eggs sign. And do you? And, and indeed we do, yes. Because why wouldn't you, if you saw fresh eggs, stop <laughs> the car, right? So it makes perfect sense to me. Can we talk masa for a moment? Because I adore an authentic tamale, and I learned much more than I ever knew about masa from the piece in the new issue. Yeah, this is a fun story by our test kitchen director, Stacey Adamondo, who has just, uh, she co-wrote the, uh, a book with the folks from Nopalito uh, Restaurant in San Francisco, and she goes deep here into masa and how you make 
uh, you know, the sort of building block of so many of these great uh, Mexican uh, dishes out of nixtamalized corn. We're eating the world with Savour Magazine. Editor-in-Chief Adam Sachs is here, and we'll be back with more right after this. There is something to be said for that fluffy, puffy empanada that comes from the same masa that you've had, you know, heavy as a brick. So I really look forward to trying the recipe for the fried shredded beef empanadas. I'm definitely Those there. Those are great and worth the investment in a, in a grinder and the time to nixtamalize your own corn. In your free time. If you're going to master something in your free time, sure. And then, of course, there is the luscious love letter to butter, written by Alex Haberstadt. Yeah, so Alex, uh, this is sort of a combination of story about, you know, what we're deeming the most expensive butter in the world at about $50 a pound. And then also kind of an argument for, uh, at at the very least, you know, experimenting with expensive butter. It's someone who, who loves butter and goes in, in search of the best and, and thinks about what, what, it's all, what it's all worth. And I think, I don't know, I love, I mean, if you're in a wonderful, you know, Michelin-starred temple of gastronomy and, and the chefs are working so hard to make these, you know, Instagrammable dishes, sometimes, a lot of times for me, the best moment, partially because you're just waiting for the rest of the food to come and it's just heightened expectation, but the best moment is when they've got really good butter and some decent bread to spread it on. Oh, I I agree with you. It brings back food memories for me, like Alex tells about his childhood uh, growing up in, is it Moscow, if I recall? Yeah. And he talks about that indelible food memory of the bread and the butter standing out from all these other foods that he says from his childhood were sometimes inedible. Um, and then we must visit Dingle, Ireland, and have ice cream, don't you think? Yeah, so this is a a, a really lovely, another ode, I guess, uh, yes. by the writer uh, Michael Ruhlman, who uh, had been told by a friend that she had had, his friend had just had the most amazing culinary experiences, eating tour, and and uh, and she said it was in Ireland, and it was, as Michael jokes, you know, he said, I, I thought you just said you had the most amazing food. <laughs> but it's this, um, this city, a coastal city called Dingle, um, and it's just this beautiful uh, sort of sweet, tiny, you know, uh, one or two uh, uh, traffic stop towns with a lot of pubs and restaurants and mm. breweries and distilleries and, and, and a lot of interesting kind of a self-selecting group of people who move there, partially now because the... The seafood and the and the the produce is so good there. Oh, There's a so nice little fresh. restaurant scene there. Yes, I have a memory as well of going to Dublin, Ireland, and I I came back saying the food was delicious, and they said, "I'm sorry, where did you go again?" Right. Because it's forever been associated with uh, filling up on Guinness and sacrificing the meal. But really, there are I think it's a testament. There are wonderful places to eat around the world. Absolutely, I think the. I think the general level has just gone up so much because 
of this, I don't know, with renewed attention to mm. to uh, real food and to also, I think, celebrating what's interesting and, and unique about uh, individual regions and not all trying to sort of chase, you know, re- recreate French food or international mm. fancy food, as they call it. Um, you know, to, to, to have food in Dingle that tastes like Dingle and have food in, you know, Nebraska that tastes like Nebraska, I think is the the best trend in in, uh, in in dining around right now. I would have to agree with you, and so we'll search it out. Where is your next travel destination? Uh, I'm going to Tuscany this summer. I'm going back to a uh, town called Pienza yes. um, with my family, and we'll rent a house with some friends and hopefully uh, cook a lot and go out very infrequently. Yes, um, brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking Wonderful. forward to it. Oh, I can't wait to see pictures. We'll read it about uh, read about <laughs> it in your editor's letter. And you should plan your next culinary excursion and use the pages of the Savoir magazine April May issue to map your course. The wide and wonderful world of recipes in cooking, wine, and culinary arts can be found in Savoir. And the April May issue is on newsstands now. Pack your bags because you are going to eat the world when you slobber on the pages like I did. <laughs> Adam, please come back and talk food with us again this summer. I know you have a grilling issue set to release. We have an issue that has some grilling in it, but I wouldn't say it's all sort of hamburgers and hot dogs. We, we find different ways to think about what to, what, to, what to cook over wood and charcoal. Well, of course you do. You are so <laughs> I look forward to dishing with you on Fabulous Food again soon. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jamie. Talk a to you pleasure. Soon. He is the editor-in-chief of Savoir Magazine, Adam Sachs, and he graces this show often to give you a taste of what is happening in the literary world when it comes to the wide and wonderful world of food. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. I do hope that I satiated your appetite and that you will tune in every Sunday and allow me to feed your soul. I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of delicious conversation for the hour. We need to talk like big time. Because this is the easiest and best way I have ever made chicken, period. I'm not going to beat around the bush about it. I'm going to tell you that this four-ingredient grilled chicken hits the spot. And yes, there are 17 and 27 ingredient marinades that I'm sure are extraordinary. But if you are short on time and you are big on taste, well, then these four ingredients in equal parts will make the best grilled chicken you'll have all summer long and next summer and the summer after that. And honestly, I have to tell you, you can make it in two minutes and then you can tuck the combination away in your head and keep it filed for all your future grilled chicken needs. So the secret is four equal parts, soy sauce, honey, water, and a few cloves of smashed garlic. And chicken, of course. And it's just that easy. Soy sauce, honey, water, and a few cloves of smashed garlic will make you a culinary hero. Try it and let me know what you think. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll meet you here next Sunday for more fabulous food in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,